Hello and welcome to the Legacy of Liberation podcast brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. To mark the 75th anniversaries of some of the major battles of the Second World War, we're exploring the cemeteries and memorials from the conflict, asking what they mean to us today and finding out more about some of the stories around them. In this episode, we're going to Arnhem in the Netherlands, which is famous for the battle that happened there in 1944, known as Operation Market Garden. My main source of research for this was the film, which I saw last night, A British Too Far. Um, I have to admit, not one of my favourite war films, I guess because uh, it depicts failure. And I suppose that's not really what most people want to watch on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, although I suppose you've got Dunkirk and uh, various things like that, the John Mills film. But yeah, I think it's it's funny. There is something about dramatic failure rather than tragedy, rather than browbeating, a chest-thumping success. Uh, maybe that's the difference between American and British. It's interesting just in those that sort of first half hour or so that plays out, it, it, a lot of the uh, dramatic tension, if you like, is around the, the rights and wrongs of, of whether to do it. And various characters in quite an on-the-nose way uh, play out the, the different arguments about whether this action is the right thing to do. And it seems to imply that there's very much a kind of personal rivalry between Montgomery and Eisenhower and that there are motivations that aren't perhaps uh, the most noble for this action. And I was wondering if you could just unpack those a bit more. Yeah, it's a really interesting feature of the, the kind of allied war effort after Normandy. You know, we think of D-Day and the success of the, of the landings and then the, the Normandy campaign and, and victory there for the Allies. But uh, And we tend to then draw a line to the end of the war very quickly. And actually what Arnhem reminds us of is that there are all kinds of different debates going on amongst the Allies, all kinds of different challenges. Um, and Montgomery's plan after, after Normandy was to um, effectively leapfrog over the German lines, to, to, to drop troops in very close to the German border and to capture very quickly several bridges crossing the rivers, particularly the Rhine uh, at Arnhem, which would then uh, allow the troops to, to, to be on Germany's doorstep. So got a map here um, of the region, just trying to understand the geography a bit more, because I went a few months ago but didn't really understand, I don't think, the context and did not realise just how close um, you are to, to Germany here. We're also talking about, as you I think mentioned there, more than one bridge. I guess from the film you think of Arnhem Bridge being the key, um, but actually there are some other important geographical locations, aren't there, around here that affected the, the outcome of the battle. Yeah, we've got Nijmegen to the south. Uh, there's also Grave uh, even further to the south. And you can see on this map, here's the Allied lines here. It's important to remember that the the British Airborne Division was meant to take Arnhem, but the American Airborne troops were involved as well on the bridges on the way there. Uh, and then there was a, a group of troops, got 30 corps, who were driving up a very narrow road, um, taking each of these, relieving each of these forces in turn, and then Arnhem would be the last bridge. Um, and as we know, they didn't get there in time, hence it was a bridge too far. Um, they lost it before, before uh, help could reach them can see right at the centre here of Arnhem on the map the John Frost Bridge and that's where we're going to start our journey. So we're standing by the the side of the river looking up at the bridge the sun is shining there's a couple of, of boats moored up um, people sitting on benches enjoying the sunshine it feels very normal and small scale intimate um, very very different from that grand mm scale and grand narrative of Normandy. There's certainly not a huge amount of 
kind of monuments and and an mm. interpretation here in front of the bridge. I mean, you, you'd be forgiven for mistaking that uh, this for for a different bridge. There's nothing mm. to to signify how significant it is. At least where we're standing now, um, we know that the bridge is named after Frost, the the commander of the the British forces who were fighting on the bridge. Uh, that comes up on the map uh, on the mm. sat nav. <laughs> uh, it's quite hard to to ignore. But other than that, you know, this is a just looks like a fairly normal scene. Although, you know, this bridge has clearly seen uh, a lot of history. And you say, I think it's something to do with the scale. It's sort of smaller than I imagined. The river's much smaller than <laughs> the river. Thinking about the the uh, struggle to cross it and the, the perilous um, nature of crossing it for the Polish forces that came here. And uh, it's odd to me, I think, looking mm. at it. It's much more, as you say, there's an intimacy of scale and kind of a more domestic scale, perhaps, than I mm. thought. As you say, that bridge is... Um, kind of missable in some ways. It's hard to think of it being so strategically significant. And the buildings all around. I mean, mm. when we look around here, what we can see on the on the north side of the river, all around the bridge, are all new buildings because mm. the fighting was so fierce and intense in the buildings around the northern side of the bridge. This, that's where the British forces were holding out. That's where they were trying to, uh, to push back the Germans from and clearly took a huge amount of punishment. I'm not used to actually having a handbrake. Sort yourself out, get um, a grip. Well, I'm trying to do about five things After visiting the bridge, we decided to travel just to the western outskirts of Arnhem to a place called Oosterbeek. That was really at the heart of the fighting in the Battle of Arnhem, what was called the perimeter that the Allies were trying to hold to stop themselves being captured or killed by the German forces that were surrounding them. And today, it's where you can find the Arnhem-Oosterbeek War Cemetery. This is the entrance of Arnhem Oosterbeek War Cemetery. And what can we see around us? Trees. Lots of trees. Very tall, aren't they? And um, quite imposing. It shelters the cemetery, doesn't it? You feel in a completely different world. I think one of the things that is most striking at first glance, first reaction, is that in some ways this reflects the experience of the soldiers. Mm. The people who fought here those who managed to escape, those who were captured, and of course those who were killed and now buried here, all, many of them would have fought amongst these trees and others like it. So mm. it does have that feeling of, of being part of, of the battlefield. We're just walking up to the, the cemetery gates now and you can see the, the perfect symmetry of the, the two shelter buildings either side of the the lovely intricate gate there and the stone of remembrance right in front of you and beyond that the cross of sacrifice so it's quite an interesting arrangement isn't it that um, large central kind of aisle if you like that, that's been uh, left without the headstones and the headstones either side facing in there was a lot of debate about where the cemetery should be there was disagreement over the location um, there was disagreement over um, precisely who should be buried here there were competing um, interests um, some of the the commanders wanted only certain groups to be to be buried here and others to be to be buried elsewhere um, and when you look at the map it becomes clear that actually this is a, a cemetery that, that's kind of segregated almost between uh, different groups of people so at the back of the cemetery um, we've got the kind of army forces in the the center of the RAF servicemen and all around them the the airborne, so the, the, the majority of the, the cemetery is made up with, with airborne troops, but mm -hmm. there's a clear delineation when you, when you analyse the, the headstones, they've been 
they've been installed in such a way as to create that separation mm. between the forces you can't see it on the ground it's not obvious when we're we're standing here looking out but mm. obviously with the benefit of 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 the map and the research that we've done it's 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 clear what the pattern is okay so we've come to the graves of Tommy and Claude Gronard i don't know if you know the story of of these brothers lucy no okay so they're side by side here yes and they both I could see have died on the same day, the 17th of September. So they were from Cornwall, and they were tin miners. And tin mining was a reserved occupation, so they didn't have to enlist. They weren't conscripted. But they chose to volunteer for service. And eventually they ended up in the Airborne, uh, and they landed together here at Arnhem. uh, And they died on the same day. Um, Accounts differ, but it looks like one of them was killed, the other went to try and help him and was, was killed as well. Wow. Um, and I think the personal description is quite touching on their grave as well. Winds of heaven blow softly here, where lie sleeping those we loved so dear. And that's yeah, particularly moving to see the same personal inscription on the both headstones there. We've come into one of the shelter buildings here in Arnhem Oosterbeek War Cemetery um, to escape from the sunshine, incredibly warm sunshine, even... Mm-hmm in the, the shade of the trees. But Lucy, you've brought some, some material from our archive. Yeah, so I was looking through various images that we have and uh, particularly uh, drawn, obviously, to some of these very dramatic uh, shots of the bridge that we were just at and, and the surrounding area and the destruction that you were talking about earlier. You can really see quite vividly here, can't you? And the woodland, of course. You've mm. got an image here of the, the fighting around the perimeter around Oosterbeek and you can see that the, the trench mm. almost look like, looks like a scene from the First World yeah. War. And trees very much like the trees that are around the cemetery today in the background. And this, oh. I think, is this is my favourite photo. Yeah, lovely picture. Um, a young girl uh, with a watering can, um, watering some uh, plants just under the one of these white crosses with uh, uh, unknown, an unknown headstone. So this girl is, is one of the, the flower children, the flower girls, mm-hmm. um, flower boys, who local children who, who come here um, every year still on the anniversary of the of the battle to place flowers on on every grave in the cemetery and that's a tradition that goes all the way back yeah right to the uh, immediately after liberation i think they started as you can see in, in this picture it's obviously um that this is still when the the graves are marked by crosses before it becomes headstones and i think that that gives an added poignancy to it the fact that it's an unknown headstone too Before we travelled to Arnhem, we wanted to learn more about the context of the war in 1944. So we went to meet with the eminent historian and author Sir Anthony Beaver to learn more. I think what's striking about 1944 is how different it was in many ways to 1945. I mean, 1945 was uh, a really grueling, nasty sequence of uh, of battles. Uh, it didn't have any of the rather great drama of, of 1944 in that particular sense. Um, when on the Western Front, of course, one immediately thinks of D-Day as perhaps the most ambitious operation which has ever been launched. Even Stalin, who had derided uh, the slowness of Western Allied uh, operations to actually get across the Channel, uh, had to admit uh, that it was one of the most extraordinary undertakings of the whole history of war. Um, and, of course, it launched the start of the liberation of Western Europe. But I think that the, we then see, if you like, the victory euphoria uh, of late August and September. 
and therefore the, the very unwise decision uh, to launch Operation Market Garden, which turned out to be uh, a very bloody nose for the British. And again, there was still a certain element of victory euphoria lingering on, even into the autumn. And we see the uh, German surprise attack in the Ardennes. So although 1944 appeared to be the year of victory uh, for most of the summer, it turned into a very nasty slog in the autumn and winter. And that was going to carry on for most of the early part of 1945. Do you you feel that... that in terms of the Allied efforts in Western Europe, we underestimate the the nature of the fighting elsewhere. I'm thinking particularly of the Eastern Front. Inevitably, we overestimate it because it's see, it's closer to our history, to our own self-image and um, knowledge of the Second World War. Um, obviously, in real terms, when one looks at the relative casualty figures, uh, with nine million plus uh, Soviet Red Army figures. Uh, And even if you add together, you know, the British, Canadian, the Australian, American and all the rest of it, casualties of the Second World War, uh, they're dwarfed by it. And this was, of course, the blood guilt which Stalin used to put the Allies, if you like, always on the back foot when it came to planning and discussions and conferences like um, Tehran and, um, and, and, and later on at Yalta. After the break, we hear from Wilhelmina Rieken, who was one of the original flower children who tended graves at Arnhem Oosterbeek Cemetery after the war. And she has an amazing story to tell about her memories of the battle and her time um, as an evacuee. We'll also be uh, visiting the Airborne Museum to learn a bit more about the conflict and get a sense of, of what the town was like at the time. To mark 75 years since D-Day and the liberation of Europe, the CWGC is creating a sound archive called Voices of Liberation to capture people's voices and reflections on the Second World War and the CWGC sites of remembrance across Western Europe, the Mediterranean and the Far East. Want to contribute or listen to the voices recorded so far? Just visit the website at liberation.cwgc.org. What does it take to ensure that those who died in the two world wars will never be forgotten? Discover the answer at the CWGC Experience, a unique new visitor attraction that will shine a light on the work of the remarkable organisation at the heart of remembrance of the war dead, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. A trip to the battlefields of the Western Front is not complete without a visit to the CWGC Experience. Imagine being nine years old, hiding in a cellar, uh, hearing voices from the streets above, some German, some English, not knowing what's going on, when you'll be able to come out, if you'll ever get out. Uh, That's part of the remarkable story that Wilhelmina Rieken had to tell me as we sat by the grave of the soldier uh, that she has lovingly tended for the past 75 years. We were still playing on the Sunday afternoon till about four o'clock and then our parents told us to go inside. I don't know why, but that's what we did. Uh, Before that, we saw them uh, marching and in uh, jeeps uh, going up to, uh, well, to try to get the bridge, of course, in Arnhem. Mm. And I don't know how far they went, but later on we saw them coming back again. And, well, I was five years old when the war started. Mm. And I do remember the Germans marching around our house. 
We were, lived on, we were living on the main street, on the Utrechtse weg, in Oosterbeek. But it was not, not frightening. I mean, it was more, at least to my feelings, more um, interesting what was happening. Okay. Because I didn't see any danger. As long as I'm with my parents, it is okay. It was okay together. I mean, mm. it was a lot of noise outside. The one moment it was English spoken and English shouting. And the other moment it was Germans. Because later on we found out the house was on the east side of the perimeter. Oh. And the perimeter was just, uh, and that was the east side towards Arnhem then. There was also a... Um, a window, a low window, hard to explain, but you, you had a little bit of contact with the outside. And first we thought the house was in flame. Mm. So, and everyone was starting uh, sh shouting and crying and trying to get out. But then it seemed to be dust of the red stones who were damaged. Mm. So we still stayed in. And then on a certain moment, uh, a young uh, German shouted at the door. Up the stairs from the cellar, we had to go out, and we were lined up all in front of the in, in the bakery, and there were two Germans pointing at us with a, a loaded gun, and we were asked if we were hiding Tommies. Well, it was not asked, and we didn't, but then if we had done, we were all shot down. But we still survived, so uh, one German went downstairs with a hand grenade, ready to throw, but he didn't have to because there were no English boys, no Tommies. And then we were forced to go in the cellar again, and then on the Saturday, I think it was the 23rd, we were forced to leave the house. Moving forward then to, to the post-liberation sort of uh, world, um, when did the flower children start and that tradition begin? And, and when did you first notice or hear about the, the cemetery being kind of put in place? Because I imagine that obviously, as you say, you're walking over lots of bodies and that people were buried kind of um, ad hoc in a sort of improvised way in people's back gardens and That's in right, small, yes. isolated sites. We had four, four boys, the four boys who were killed in our garden. They were buried by, uh, by young men living in the neighbourhood. And when we came back, of course, you could see it. And we knew one day we came from school and it was a funny smell, not very nice. And then my father told us to go in the house through the shop. Normally we had to go to the back door, but then we went through the shop. And they were just moving the bodies from our garden. We can see in this picture here of the children um, walking up to the individual crosses to place their flowers. Yeah. The, the crowds in the background. So this was something that brought the whole community together. Oh, absolutely. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And one of the most remarkable pictures that you've um, got here is of you as a 10-year-old. That's think? right, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. With um, the grave of, of William Evman here. How did that feel to to be there. Well, we felt very proud. I think you can see in my face yeah. as well. We were very proud and grateful that the boys um, tried to liberate us mm. and felt very, very sorry they did not survive. Mm. And this, I adopted this grave. Uh, it was asked in the school classes. We put flowers always. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the school children do, but we do as family, and now I'm the only one of the family, so I, I do it.
broadcasting on wavelengths 1500 and 373 meters and in wavelengths 49, 41, 31 and 25 meters. My fellow citizens, the liberation of the Netherlands is at hand. Our army, navy and air forces are fighting side by side with our... We're in the basement of the museum in, in Arnhem, which is located in what was the Hartenstein Hotel, the headquarters of the Airborne Division after they landed here in Arnhem. We're actually, I think, in the basement here, aren't we, Lucy? Yeah, um, this area is uh, about the resistance um, of amongst locals, uh, and we've just come from the, the upstairs area that talks a bit more about the, the technicalities of the fighting and kind of follows through the, the story of the battle. I think one of the interesting things about Arnhem for visitors, for tourists who, who come here and try to understand what happened here, it's the urban environment, I think, is very interesting. You know, we can all imagine what it might have been like having fighting in our streets, in our houses. Mm. It's, there's a kind of special horror to it as well, that idea that one day you wake up and, and the war is right there mm. um, on your doorstep. There's the sound of gunfire, um, mm. the sound of, uh, of signalling, um, of, of confusion, of chaos, of mm. vehicles driving around, and also that poignancy for, for Dutch civilians of that hope, that that sense of, oh, maybe this is it, maybe this is the mm. moment we've been waiting for, and then, of course, ten, ten days later, uh, those hopes being dashed so mm. brutally. Well, I mean, talking yesterday about um, being in the cellar and uh, hearing English voices shouting and thinking, okay, this is, they've come now, this is a decisive moment, and then, you know, minutes later hearing German voices and hearing that back and forth for, for hours on end and realising that it really was all, all in the balance and, and touch and go. Um, to the point that when they were eventually liberated and she was uh, in Appledore and then and, and said again hiding in the cellar and being told you can come out, the Tommies have come they couldn't believe that because they'd had such a, uh, obviously a harrowing experience of that first time round that uh, it took them a long time to, to trust that it would be safe to come out We're in the immersive experience now Lucy I don't know whether you can hear me, it's really loud here <laughs> It's a kind of recreation of the, the destroyed Arnhem during the battle and you can hear some of the sounds and the, the horrific sights that they've recreated around here. I can imagine it would be quite overwhelming, particularly for children. Yeah. Um, but it certainly gives you a feeling, some semblance of, of mm. what it might have been like, mm. which mm. is so hard to imagine when you walk around the peaceful streets mm. today. I went to speak with Jim Hooper, who in 1944 was a glider pilot who helped to land some of the troops who fought at Arnhem. I was in the Royal Signals in the, uh, uh, the, the Territorial Army before the war. But because I had a motorbike and was a motorbike rider, uh, then I became a dispatch rider in the Signals. Becoming a, being a dispatch rider in London during the Blitz was very, very dangerous. Mm. I had come off my bike uh, uh, quite a few times, once into a bomb crater, and uh, I had some harrowing experiences. So that is why I decided to uh, uh, do something that was less dangerous, <laughs> and that is what persuaded me to become a glider pilot. On joining the glider pilot regiment, I automatically became a corporal, and then after getting my wings, I was made a sergeant, and then when I became uh, 
uh, a first pilot of the Horsa aircraft, I became a staff sergeant. Do you remember being told about Market Garden and what the plan was for you at Arnhem? Well, what we've been preparing for um, was cancelled 15 <laughs> times. Did you know that? Because the, uh, uh, either the, the, the landing zone that had been selected had been overrun by the Allies or it had been occupied by the Germans. And the only one that came up and stayed was the one at Arnhem. And that was organised in a great hurry. And that was part of the reason why it was a failure. We were going and we were going to enjoy ourselves, but at least we were going to see some action. Um, so uh, uh, the takeoff was was good. It was smooth. Fingers crossed, and we uh, uh, we joined all the formations. Uh, we flew across the North Sea. It was very very heavy going uh, because of the, all the turbulence, and uh, trying to control the glider with the heavy load was uh, was quite difficult. Um, but we got to the. Uh, a landing zone and the tug pilot or his navigator said okay Jim uh, you can pull off whenever you like the target is down there and I, I pulled off when I thought was right uh, made a very very uh, good landing and they all got out wiping their brows they were down safe and sound the the south staffs uh, they took up their uh, pre-assigned uh, uh, positions and uh, um, I looked for my uh, uh, squadron um, and I was having difficulty and uh, then I came across the uh, 13 platoon the South Staffs who by this time had occupied uh, a house at the railway crossing at Woolfays. Mm. They, uh, they invited me to join them which is what I did, I, I was pleased to have uh, a, a place to go to. <laughs> Our mission was to get to the bridge to reinforce the paratroops and the airborne troops who'd occupied the north side of the bridge uh, but uh, hadn't uh, got sufficient strength to get over the bridge and occupy the south side, uh, which was the intention. The intention, of course, was to... Uh, uh, to uh, um, to make a, to secure a crossing for 30 corps to come up and cross the bridge and then go on to uh, Germany from there. We dug in into the grounds around the municipal uh, museum um, and then they, they really came at us in force. We were overrun and overwhelmed and uh, uh, there were many, many casualties uh, I stayed in the position I was at until eventually, uh, uh, well, very, very soon, a, uh, a, a German soldier there, uh, backed by two or three others, holding stick grenades, were just about ready to throw them. And at that point, I surrendered with all of the others who were in the ground with me. So that was Arnhem. Uh, I think for me, the biggest thing that I take away from it is that difference between so many of those cemeteries that we visit that are out in the middle of the countryside by themselves, surrounded by fields, 
you know, this really felt like it was the heart of a community. The battlefield was the town. Um, and I think it was a, a really extraordinary, unique place to go and visit. And I think for me, thinking of it also as uh, being at the heart of someone's life was such a, a powerful and, and moving experience. Speaking to Wilhelmina was uh, one of the, the best interviews, the best experiences I think I've had during the, the podcast series, because you realise the after effects, the legacy as we've been exploring of the war on her uh, and and how it had positive outcomes too, that it actually uh, brought about some lifelong friendships and some interesting kind of discoveries of, of people and um, places that she would never have encountered without it. Um, and so in that sense, it was, it was uplifting. And that is how you feel coming away from this place, isn't it? It, it isn't kind of the story of tragedy and defeat in quite the way that you imagine before you go. No, it's a story of hope and building a better future. The Legacy of Liberation podcast was brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. The presenters were Lucy Kellett and Glenn Prosser. Our special thanks for this episode go to Jim Hooper, Wilhelmina Rekin, and Sir Anthony Beaver. The producer was Jack Sheeran. And this is the last episode in the series. We just want to thank everyone who's contributed. Amazing interviews and, and wonderful to meet the staff at these various cemeteries around the world. And thank you to everyone who's listened. Yeah, and please do keep in touch with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We're going to be doing all kinds of interesting projects um, from 2019 all the way through uh, the end of the Second World War. Uh, we'll have all kinds of social media and uh, video content for you to watch. Uh, so do keep in touch with what we've got going on and do please visit our cemeteries more than anything. You know, I think if there's one thing that we wanted to do with this podcast, it was to encourage people to go and visit and to experience those places. 